The dollar is facing a revolt. The world knows it as the king of currencies, but the dominance of the dollar is now under threat. More and more countries are looking for alternatives, and China's yuan is emerging as a clear challenger. Beijing is pursuing a string of deals. The latest one is with Brazil. Brazil and China are ditching the dollar. From now on, they'll use their own currencies for trade. So China is pushing the yuan. What about the Indian rupee? It's not far behind. The Indian rupee is also emerging as a serious contender. And why are these trends significant? Because currencies drive commerce. The dollar's dominance gives the U.S. an outsized influence on the global economy, and a shift away from the dollar will only hurt America. It will also hasten the rebalancing of the global economy. In the next few minutes, we'll look at this trend and where this is going. First, the events in Brazil. Brazil announced the deal yesterday, and it did not come out of the blue. The agreement had been in the works for a while. A preliminary pact was signed in the month of January. It laid the foundations of the final agreement. And it's a fairly simple deal. Earlier, Brazil and China used the US dollar for trade. Now they will deal in their native currencies. China will use the yuan, and Brazil will use the Brazilian reais. How does it help? It will save costs. Look at the official statement from Brazil. This is what it says. The expectation is that this will reduce costs, promote even greater bilateral trade, and facilitate investment. China is Brazil's biggest trading partner. Last year, their bilateral trade was worth over $150 billion. So it makes sense for Brazil to ditch the dollar. But what's in it for China? Beijing is on a mission. It wants to internationalize the yuan. It is building a large coalition of partners. These are countries that will use the yuan instead of the U.S. dollar, and Beijing has made considerable progress in this direction. It has secured bilateral pacts with 41 countries so far. The total value of these agreements is more than $500 billion. So the yuan is gaining international acceptance. And the petro-yuan is rising. Now, what is the petro-yuan? It's not a different currency. Petro-yuan is simply using the yuan to settle oil bills, just like the petrodollar. And China is making an aggressive push for this. It is finding takers in oil-producing nations. Russia, for instance, it has embraced the yuan. So have Iran, Venezuela, and some African nations. Now, reports say Saudi Arabia is also considering the switch, the switch from the dollar to the yuan. And this is going to be a very important development. We know that Riyadh has been at odds with Washington and is getting closer to Beijing. But ditching the dollar will be a decisive move. Meanwhile, the Indian rupee is also competing in this race. Last year, India's Reserve Bank made a move. It allowed international trade settlements in the Indian rupee. It's still early days, but India has made progress. Banks in 18 countries have shown interest. They've opened special accounts, and these accounts will help them settle trade payments in the Indian rupee. And these are the countries we're talking about. They're ditching the dollar. They want to use the Indian rupee for trade with India. Earlier this year, Brazil and Argentina floated an idea. They're thinking about a common currency for South America. Halfway across the world, Southeast Asia, too, is losing patience with the U.S. dollar. In Africa, countries like Kenya are dumping the dollar. They'll use the Kenyan shilling for oil imports. So here's a question. Why is all of this happening now? Why is there a global rebellion against the dollar? Also, how did the dollar become the world's reserve currency? It happened after the Second World War in the year 1944. 44 allied countries met at Bretton Woods in the US. 44 countries came together. They wanted to avoid another financial turmoil, so they created a system. 
a set of rules that would shape the global economy as we know it today. It led to the creation of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, also the World Bank. The Allies also agreed to a new exchange rate system. Each country pegged the value of its currency to the US dollar, and that's how the American dollar gained its dominance. The Bretton Woods Conference gave the US immense power to dominate the global economy. It created two financial institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, largely controlled by America. And they're still quite powerful and still led by the US. As for the dollar, it is still widely used, both inside and outside the US. About $1 trillion notes are in circulation outside America. Some 40% of the world's debt is issued in US dollars. Nearly 60% of the global currency reserves are in US dollars, and close to 90% of all foreign exchange trade involves the US dollar. The world economy is hooked to the dollar, but now it wants to give up this addiction, but it will not happen overnight. The dollar's downfall, though, has begun. And here's another blow to US interests. Saudi Arabia is shifting out of the American security umbrella. It has become a member of the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, a security grouping led by China. Saudi Arabia is not a full member yet. It has joined as a dialogue partner. But this is the first step to full membership. And it signals Riyadh's intent to foster closer ties with Beijing. Remember, China recently brokered a big deal, a truce between Saudi Arabia and Iran. They resume diplomatic ties. And China has usurped America's traditional role as mediator in West Asia. Now, Saudi Arabia is taking the next step. It is joining the SCO. To understand what it means, let's first understand the SCO. It's a security bloc, but it's not a uniform bloc. The SCO has eight full members, China, Russia, India, Pakistan, and some Central Asian countries. How effective will a security bloc be if it has both India and Pakistan? and India and China. So what is India doing in this group? It became a full member in the year 2017, years after Russia pushed for India's membership. At the same time, China pushed for Pakistan, and it became a member in the same year, 2017. So India, China, and Pakistan are in the same group. But that did not stop China from trying to invade Indian territory in 2020. It also did not stop Pakistan from trying to infiltrate into Kashmir. Moral of the story? The SCO is not some kind of Eastern NATO, but it does have military, economic, and cultural cooperation. And as weird as it may sound, last year, Pakistani, Chinese, and Indian troops exercised together. They held a joint anti-terror exercise on Indian soil. That's the SCO for you, a coalition of contradictions. Now, Saudi Arabia wants to join it. It shows two things. China's expanding influence and America's shrinking role. Saudi Arabia's ties with the U.S. have been frosty ever since Joe Biden became president. He famously vowed to make Saudi Arabia a pariah on the global stage. This was over the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. He's said to have been killed on the orders of MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, also its de facto ruler. So Biden's threat was directed at MBS, and before he could make good on this threat, the Saudis are moving on. They're looking for friends elsewhere. The Saudis are le leaning towards Russia and China. On oil production, Saudi Arabia sided with Russia rather than America. On the truce with Iran, it has chosen China over America. Riyadh is being pragmatic. 
It is also deepening economic ties with China. Saudi oil giant Aramco has started a joint project with some Chinese firms. This project is in northeast China. It is worth $12 billion, and Aramco holds a 30% stake in it. It has also been investing in Chinese companies. An Aramco CEO recently said this, I'm quoting, Saudi Aramco aims to play a key role at the heart of China's long-term energy security and high-quality development. Now look at these developments together. And you'll see that Saudi Arabia is playing the long game. It is diversifying its partners, moving away from its dependence on the West. But again, this will be in the long term. Saudi Arabia cannot snap ties with the US overnight. They've been partners for eight decades now. Saudi Arabia's entire security infrastructure is American-made. Analysts say it would take over a decade to replace American arms and defense systems with Chinese alternatives. And the withdrawal of American troops would still be risky. Because despite the thaw in Saudi-Iran relations, it's not all peace, rainbows, and sunshine. They're still fighting a proxy war in Yemen, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And that war may end soon, but the years of hostility will take time to neutralize. The SCO may become another forum for Riyadh and Tehran to interact. Iran, too, is expected to become a full-time member soon. So the West Asian rivals could use the SCO to find common ground. But again, mending ties will take time. Riyadh's move today is basically a signal to the Americans that the clock has started ticking on American hegemony in West Asia. And big news for Indians working in the United States. A U.S. court has decisively ruled in their favor. It applies to all those who hold an H-1B visa. Their spouses can now work in the U.S. This will mean more financial security for Indian workers in America and another win for people-to-people -people ties between Washington and New Delhi. Remember, there was a concerted effort to make life difficult for such workers. A group called Save Jobs USA was gunning for the jobs of Indians. The court has ruled against them. Here's a report. Foreign workers in the U.S. are breathing a sigh of relief. An American court has upheld their right to work. It said that the spouses of H-1B visa holders can work in America. The ruling will benefit Indians the most. First, let's understand the basics. An H-1B visa allows foreigners to work in the U.S. in specialty occupations. These occupations require specialized knowledge. We're talking about fields like biotechnology, computing, economics, education, research, journalism, medicine and health. You need an H-1B visa to work in these fields in America if you're not a citizen. And these are just a few examples. Say you have an H-1B visa and a job. Your spouse and dependent children will get something called the H-4 visa. A lot of these H-4 visa holders also started working in America. This was thanks to an Obama-era regulation. It allowed H-4 visa holders to work in the U.S. Recently, a lawsuit was filed against them. This was done by a group called Save Jobs USA. They said the regulation did not have the approval of Congress, meaning H-4 visa holders should not be allowed to work. But that argument has been struck down. A U.S. district judge ruled that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security had the authority to issue work permits to H-4 visa holders. She said that the U.S. government has been allowing this practice for years and that the Congress has both implicitly as well as explicitly ratified the practice. On the face of it, this might not seem like a big deal. 
But ask Indians living in the US and they'll tell you it's perhaps the most significant ruling that has come their way in a long time. Sure, Indians aren't the only ones who get an H-1B visa, but they get the maximum number of these visas. In 2020 and 2021, Indians got 74% of the H-1B visas issued by America, and the trend continues. The US has issued 100,000 work authorizations to the spouses of H-1B visa holders. A considerable number of these are for Indians, and the court has ruled in their favor. They can now continue working and supporting their families financially. Also, the US needs Indian workers. There's a reason why so many Silicon Valley executives are Indians. They are highly skilled, motivated, and known to deliver results. So this is a community which Washington cannot afford to antagonize. The U.S. has taken a series of steps to mitigate the troubles of Indians traveling to the U.S. In September last year, the Biden administration had promised to help Indians out. Here's what Secretary of State Antony Blinken said. We have a plan when it comes to India to address the backlog of visas that's built up. I think you'll see that play out in the coming months, but it's something that we're very focused on. These connections, these people-to-people -people ties, whether it's students, whether it's um, uh, business people, uh, whether it's uh, tourists, whether it's family, this is what really links us together, and the last thing we want to do is make that any more difficult. A lot has happened since. Last month, the U.S. said it was reintroducing domestic visa revalidation, especially for H-1B and L-1 visa holders. Again, Indians would benefit a lot. Since 2004, Indians living in the U.S. had to travel to India to get their visas revalidated. And that was a big hassle. It took months, if not years, to get this done. But soon, such visa holders will not have to travel to their country of origin. Instead, they can get their visas revalidated in the U.S. itself. That's not all. The U.S. says the wait time for visitor visa interviews in India has come down by 60% this year. And Washington has set a goal for this year. It plans to issue 1 million visas to Indians in 2023. It has already processed more than 200,000 applications in its embassy and consulates across India. So the U.S. is finally paying attention to the troubles faced by Indian applicants and workers. It's proof of the deepening bilateral partnership and the value Indian professionals bring to the table.